You're listening to Booth One. Welcome again, Booth One listeners. Gary and Frank with you as usual, bringing you the best in the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. Frank, have you seen A Star is Born? I have seen A Star is Born, yes. Let's talk about that for a second. All right, okay. Did you enjoy yourself? I did, I did, yeah, yeah. It's a good movie, it's not a great movie. It's good, but not great, yeah. First of all, Lady Gaga's great, I really like Bradley Cooper. I love Um, Bradley Cooper. The music is good, you know, everything everything basically works. The basic problem is, I've seen the three, actually four, other versions of it. So, they follow the script pretty closely, and so you're watching it, and you know, oh, there's that, oh, I bet this is, oh, there it is, and now they're doing, oh, yep, yep, and now they're doing this, now they're doing that, which means you're looking at how they did it rather than what is going on and how is not as compelling as what. Mm. You know, whether you're like, oh my God, is she going to make it? Is she not? What's going to happen with this? Down to the Grammy Awards. So that makes it less compelling for me, but it's still, it's a good movie. I was totally entertained for two and a half hours. The music is great. Mm -hmm. Their performances are are very nice. I loved him. I thought he was just fantastic in it. Yeah, Uh, she's good too. I liked her. I quibble with the fact that people are saying she's the front runner for the Oscar. Mm. I'm of the opinion that she may not even get a nomination. I think she could get a nomination, but I know two performances that I think are better. I've seen Glenn Close in The Wife. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but she is really, really wonderful in that film. I heard she's wonderful. She plays the wife of a Nobel laureate, right? Correct. And then we just saw The Favorite at the Chicago Film Festival, and Olivia Colman is out of this world. She plays kind of a daffy Queen Anne, and uh, her lady-in-waiting is Rachel Weisz. But then Emma Stone comes along, and she wants to be the favorite. So there's kind of an all-about-eve thing going on. But Coleman is just phenomenal. So I think I think the two of them are the performances that I've seen. I would put those ahead of Lady And the Gaga. Queen is an actress, a British actress, who my producer and I loved in a uh, television series called Broadchurch. Broad yeah, she's wonderful She was great as a, as a police officer in that show. And she's also the new Queen Elizabeth in The Crown. If anyone's watching yes. The Crown, they moved it ahead so many years, and so they have a new... Philip and, and a new Elizabeth, and she's the queen in that too, but she's fabulous yeah. in this. Well, I recommend A Star is Born for yeah. sheer entertainment value. Sure, you can't go wrong, yeah. but you know what you're getting, I assume. Well, let me waste no more time in introducing our very special guest in the booth today, one of the finest actors I know. Yes. <laughs> oh my, thank you. <laughs> Francis V. Guinan Jr., did I get all of that right? You did, you got the whole thing in there. <laughs> What's the V stand for? Vincent. Vincent. Ah, Francis yes. Vincent Guinan Jr. I'm going to take a guess and say that you might have been raised Catholic. Am I wrong? On that? I, I think you'd be, you'd be very close <laughs> to the truth. I'm yeah. Gary Michael Peter Zabinski. So oh, <laughs> was Peter your confirmation? It was. It's mine as well. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's well, right. Small world. My I goodness. Know. Francis is a film, television, and stage actor who is yeah. known for many, many, many roles around Chicago. But you also played Edgar Teller, the patriarch, in a short-lived television series, which oh. was extremely popular Gosh. called Erie, Indiana. That's right. <laughs> do you remember Erie, Indiana, Frank? I it was quite, it's quite a number of years ago, but check it, out. it was very, very popular. The Council Bluffs, Iowa-born actor has been a member of the Steppenwolf Theater Company Ensemble, and this is just crazy, no. since 1979. 
That's correct. Are you one of the original ensemble members? Well, no, actually. Uh, well, we all went to school together. Um, we went to Illinois State in Normal, Illinois. Then I, I went off to graduate school, and, and they went up to Highland Park and right. started, the, started the theater. Right. And it was a couple of years later that they asked Jeff me to Perry join. Jeff yeah. Perry and... Terry Kinney. Terry. Yeah. H.E. Uh, Bacchus. Yeah, H.E. was up there. Mm-hmm. He was the first artistic director. I taught at Illinois State during that time. I taught at the University High School. Oh, you did? And so, yeah. Oh, my From God. 69 to 74. So ah. they were all... I was seeing them in all their college productions when they were there, and a friend of mine was dating H.E. for a while, so I remember coming up and seeing, I think it was the seahorse in the church basement. I oh, think yeah. that was one of the very oh, yeah. early incarnations of it, and I, you know, kind of interact with some of the people. But yeah, I was there at the beginning. <laughs> well, there was a house fire up in uh, Highland Park, and the people whose house burned were kind enough to like donate what was left of their furniture. Yeah, that's for that. right. And that was all on stage. <laughs> that was that's yeah. how we would. That's it, how we ended up getting definitely our humble set beginnings. For that. Yeah. <laughs> What's your earliest memory of being in a Steppenwolf production? Oh, it was, let me see, The Real Inspector Hound. Oh. The year that we came down, or that the theater moved down from Highland Park, we did four shows at the Apollo Theater on Lincoln Avenue. And one show that we pulled out of the air was The Real Inspector Hound. Of course, it's about two theater critics and uh, going to see a play, a mystery play, and there had to be a corpse on stage. So that was John Malkovich. That was the <laughs> perfect. That was the first professional production I'm I sure had ever been in with John Malkovich. He was and a action. corpse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or lack of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we did four shows there. The first major production we mounted was uh, Waiting for Lefty with Sheldon Patinkin. Sheldon Patinkin directed it. Yeah. Say good night, Gracie. Oh, see, that's right. That was my equity show. That's how I joined equity. Oh. Oh, that was fun. With Austin Pendleton. Austin Pendleton directing, yes. I remember, John, uh, we we were rehearsing it, and uh, I come running in, meeting all my friends from high school, and with no preamble at all, John Malkovich turned me upside down and grabbed me by the ankles and started pile-driving my head into the floor. Is he looking for loose change or something? (laughs) He was getting it. (laughs) Of course, everyone thought that was so funny that uh, it was in the play. (laughs) Great. He'd have to pick me up every night and pile-drive my head. In 2007, you were part of the cast of Tracy Letts' play, August Osage County, which opened on Broadway to critical acclaim. You were quite magnificent in that. Uh, You've played Master Paku in the 2010 film The Last Airbender, as well as you appeared in (laughs) Speed 2. Oh, yes. With Sandra Bullock. Absolutely. That was that was great fun. It was one of the best jobs I ever had. Really? Oh, yeah. Were you at sea or were you on a... Oh, we were at sea constantly. We were down in (laughs) Key West for Halloween, and that's a trip I I I I have to recommend to (laughs) everyone wants <laughs> and then we uh, were running around the, the, the Caribbean, Caribbean um, yeah. and uh, hung out an awful lot on St. Vincent it was a lovely job I I don't think I'm alone in thinking it was something it, it, of a ghastly like, it's movie. It's like having but, a cruise ship job, except making a movie. That's and exactly. we had all the luxuries yeah. of it being on a cruise. Was. And I and I, you know, made some uh, made a year on my. SAG pension for it too. Beautiful. Oh, so that's, that good. was great. Yeah. You were also in Hannibal in 2001, yeah. a movie called Constantine in 2005. Oh, yeah. That's with Keanu Reeves. That's right. I really like that movie. And Rachel Weiss, Weiss I think. Yes, she, 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 yeah. I had, that's what, that was my scene. 
Uh, I had it with Rachel Vi. She was oh, she was quite quite fun to work with. I bet she's the serious goods that actress. She really was serious that day. I remember she came she came running and she's right before the scene. She would always have she'd have these earphones in and she had her what I I don't know what it was then what what was iPod, the first thing probably. iPad iPod iPod, iPod. iPod yeah. So she had her iPod in listening to this really intense music and then you come in and do the scene. Uh, uh. <laughs> I'd never seen anybody do that before, so it was it was great fun. You're known to your friends and colleagues as Fran. Yeah, Guinan. May yeah. I call you Fran? Please do. Martha Levy like actually dubbed me Fran, so oh. I, I kept it. Tell us a little bit and our listeners about growing up in Council Bluffs. Were your parents in favor of your studying for a theater career? Oh, they were very supportive of of everything I I did. I do, <laughs> I do recall. My brother Jim uh, had given me um, uh, some mint coins from the year of my birth, so I had them in these little plastic holders, and, and I had to go go to rehearsal. <laughs> and I, <laughs> uh, I'd just been fired from my job at Potbelly. You, you ever go to Potbelly's oh, down yeah. in the city? Uh, yeah. uh, at Potbelly sandwiches, and I was broke. And I had to get to rehearsal. I had to get Uh-oh. on the train, so I broke open the plastic. Oh! <laughs> and you used so, like the, I used, the, I used the fifty my, cent pieces, uh, the silver dollars, uh, uh, to get it, on to, the CTA. To get on the CTA, and so I called my parents up, and I, I needed a loan to to pay my rent that particular month. And, and my dad, there's a long pause on the other end of the phone. He said, "Fran, you you, you think this acting stuff's working out?" <laughs> <laughs> because they had such high hopes, they were going to pay for send me to law school. But mm. uh, luckily, that's when Say Goodnight Gracie came up. That was my that was the equity contract that saved my bacon. <laughs> well, you've pretty much worked at virtually every theater in Chicago, as far as Many I can of think them, of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Northlight and Writers, and of course Steppenwolf, yeah, and down at court. Just once, about yeah. just about everything. You've been everywhere. What's your earliest memory of seeing a stage piece that may have inspired you to pursue a career in theater? Did it run in your family, or did you, like some of us, see no, well, my, Peter Pan when we were young and go, I'm, oh, I'm going to do that forever? Saying. No, I remember, I, I think this is a real memory. I recall there was a, a tour of, oh, one of those things where they come and do uh, Shakespeare scenes for high school. Mm. It's like a, it's an hour program, and they're probably in some van <laughs> staying in cheap hotels, just yeah. going all around, you know, uh, western Iowa. And I recall they came to my school, once my high school, and the only thing I really remember from it, and it really struck me at the time, this guy was playing... T- had pulled something from Hamlet, and as he was coming down stage, he had his foil drawn, and he was dragging it behind him, and the the foil was making this this ringing sort of scratching noise that I th- just kind of raised the hair on the back of my neck, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> I mean, that you could get that kind of an emotional response from somebody just from doing that. Because, I mean, you know, there was the whole thing. He was, like, being really intense and kind of focused, and and, uh, it was quite thrilling. That might have been the first time I was really struck by something. 
on stage. In addition to all the credits that we've talked about as well, you're currently in a new play at Steppenwolf, a play by ensemble member Bruce Norris. Yeah. Pulitzer Prize winning ensemble member Bruce yeah. Norris. You're in a play called Downstate. Mm-hmm. Frank? You just saw that, didn't you? Just I saw hours it ago. A few hours ago, yeah. At at the matinee today. I did. How did you enjoy yourself? Oh, it's terrific. It's really enjoy may not be the actual word. Well, you, you do enjoy it because you get caught up in the yeah. characters and you get caught up in the situation, and you're thrilled by the highs in the play because there's some very strong moments. So you do enjoy it. Although the subject matter certainly is unsettling. Fran, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what this play is about. When people who molest or have sexual contact with underage children, they end up on a sex reg- a registry, a, a, a sexual predator registry. And of course, you can find this online. It's public everywhere. knowledge. Yeah. Public knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what happens sometimes is that uh, since there are some rather severe restrictions on where they can live, depending on the municipality, it can be anywhere from 1,000 feet to 15,000 feet from the nearest school. You can't live within that area. You can't live within any place that might, where you might come in contact with children. Playgrounds, whatever. Playgrounds, yeah. etc. And so consequently, that place is a rather severe restriction on, on where they can live. And sometimes several of these uh, men end up living in the same house. This particular one in the play is provided by the Lutheran Church. I mean, they, they, they own the property and and it's and four men living together it's in four men living together. The title refers to downstate Illinois, yes. somewhere. Yeah, it's probably mid-state, someplace. Mid-state. It's not quite all the way down mm-hmm. uh, to the Ohio Bloomington-ish. River, yeah, maybe. somewhere around there. So anyway, these these four men live together, and you just get a peek at their everyday lives. Uh, there's a confrontation that occurs during the play, but yeah, uh, but yes, what, one of the victims. Played by, amazingly played by Tim Hopper. A fantastic performance. Arrives to have a, some sort of cathartic experience with your character. Yes. Sort of a, a, a talking cure. I mean, he's, uh, yeah. been, he's been severely emotionally damaged by, by this and, and several other things that's happened in his life. But this is sort of the focal point of his, of his trauma. And he's trying to exercise these negative emotions by, by confronting his, uh, his attacker. And the play ensues. Not an easy subject, Frank. No, and surprisingly, it's quite funny in parts. There are a lot of very humorous moments, not certainly about the molestation. That is not funny at all. But in their reactions and, and the way that they interact with each other and some of the things that happen. Certain other characters are you know, over the top in terms of the way that they are handling things. And so there's really a lot more humor in this play than you would expect. Oh, yeah. Lots of, uh, it really is pretty funny. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it's very dark. It is. So I was laughing out loud a number of times, and I was also very freaked out at other times. You know? So that's, I, I always think that's the, the mark of a good play. It can make you laugh, it can make you cry. Yeah, I love this play. I think that Bruce Norris is a bit of a genius. Well, not a bit. He is a genius. He takes us on this journey through these characters' lives, and there's a parole officer beautifully played by Cecilia Noble, who's an English actress. Yes, uh, yes. Because this is co-produced with the National Theatre. The National Theatre in You're London, going yes. to the National in February to rehearse and, yes. and present it there. She's terrific in the, in the play. 
Bruce Norris portrays these four men in such a very sympathetic way. I very much empathize with their struggles and their processes. You see them as human beings, and that's important because we tend to think of these people as monsters, and there is talk even in the play of how they are monsters, but they're not. They're people... They're human um, beings. They're human yes. beings. And, you know, the, the young man who comes to confront Francis' character is going through an awful lot and having some difficulty. And he says at one point, you have no idea what I've been through. And one of the characters says, you have no idea what we've been through. Because they've paid their debt to society, but they've had pretty horrible things happen to them as well. Not sexually necessarily. So he really balances it out between the human and the despicable and the good and the evil. And it's all there. He does not make any pronouncements, well, this should, it should be this way, it should be that way. It is what it is. You walk away with a lot of questions. You questions do. You for do. yourself about what's the nature of justice? What's the nature of mercy and forgiveness? And what's the nature of the human condition? Which I think all great plays are really about. Right, exactly. Right. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. On the other hand, I think these characters are clearly deluding themselves to a large degree as well. And I think that's, that's one of the wonderful things about the performances is that you you see them sort of kidding themselves or omitting the most damning aspects of, of what it is they've done. And that, that, too, is very human. And there are moments when you see them get it, but then they pull back right away. Oh, I think yeah. in all the characters, you oh, know. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Or they remain silent at a moment when you would have thought that, they would, mm-hmm. that they'd speak up. It, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a very clever piece. Mm-hmm. He's done quite well with it. Other great performances in the play. In fact, all the performances are absolutely top-notch. Yeah, I can't imagine being cast any other way. K. Todd Freeman. He takes care of you he's in a, bit a of number a, he, of ways. He's a bit of a nurse for this wheel-bound chair Housekeeper-ish, does the shopping. Yeah. But still, one of the four oh, yeah, no, right. uh, abusers yeah, no, completely. Uh, living in the house. <laughs> Although uh, it's interesting, because in his character, he believed that... The, they were really in love. He actually had a what, two-year relationship yes. with this person, and it's implied that the person reciprocated that with it was that consensual. love. That it was consensual. Even the kid was 14 and he was 37, whatever it was. But nevertheless, so again, you see a different dimension to it as opposed to somebody grabbing somebody off the street and molesting. And in a way, I mean, you, you can certainly have a point of view that isn't that isn't that an even worse betrayal? I mean, convincing someone of that age to indulge in something that they, I would presume, you, they can't really understand. They weren't ready for, yeah. That they certainly weren't ready But of course, you know, for. in New Guinea. <laughs> well, that's true. There's, well, there is that New Guinea story, isn't he does, there? He does justify <laughs> it by some <laughs> tribe in New yeah. Guinea that has yes. some I think, kind of... I think we'll leave that to... <laughs> To yes. the paying customers. Yes, yes. <laughs> each of the four men, the four lead men in the play, each have their own individual particular story. And yeah. each is very, very different. As you mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. here's this one who had a long-term relationship with a young boy who maybe was consensual. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. We're not exactly sure. As you say, Fran, who, these who gentlemen knows? are that's, that's in, his story. deluding yeah. themselves. We're hearing from him. Where... You know, what's a lie? What's, what's true? What you're always aware of, though, of course, is that these people are all quite sincere mm-hmm. and, and have a point of view that they would take to the carpet. I mean, they, this is my story, and I'm sticking with it. Yeah. 
and you can't really argue with that. You can't, you can't argue with someone's self-deception, I suppose. But it's, it's, it's a, it's, Bruce has written some just terrific characters. It's, it's very difficult. Some it's great, great lines, fun. too. Yeah. Really, really some great lines. I'm trying dialogue. to think of yeah. some of them. Like, I, is, if this were broadcast, I couldn't tell any of them. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I couldn't recommend the play highly enough. Right. I agree. Uh, directed yeah. by Pam McKinnon. It's just been extended till November 18th. Yes. yes. The week of previews was the week of the Kavanaugh hearings. Oh, really? Before the Senate. One of the one of the lines, one of the things that uh, Andy, this character, says in the play, who's been who's come back to try to confront Fred, one of the things he says is that victims don't lie, victims tell the truth, and you have no right to question that. And he's absolutely sincere about it. He may be a little fuzzy on the facts, but of what happened like 30 years previously, but there, he's clearly been victimized. And this was exactly the same week that the Kavanaugh hearings were happening. <laughs> wow. And so there were, there were some strange reactions in the audience. I mean, uh, people were like shifting around. I mean, you can hear little them, squirming, little you know? squirming. And they were, Oh my God. Oh, did he say that? You know? And, and, <laughs> But it, all of this history had suddenly caught up with like several scenes in this play about uh, victimization and about confronting people who have, who have victimized them. It, it turned out to be spookily tiny. I mean, even now people are, you know, people have very, very vocal responses to that scene. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's the yeah. Kavanaugh. Well, it's very topical. Yes. Yeah, indeed it is. Very much of our time. Yep. Yep. And again, I can't re- recommend it highly enough, Frank. Yeah. No, I, w- I would definitely run and get a ticket if you can. It was, I think today was sold out. I don't know how many tickets are left, but they did extend it, so I would get tickets when we I can. Ju- yeah, we just announced the extension, so I think we've got plenty of tickets. Okay, all right, good. We'll Call get over box there. Office. Get Wonderful. over there. Fran, do you have any phobias? Do you have any fears in life? I do actually. I'm afraid of heights. Ah. Mm. I just I I it I can't. It's weird. So you haven't walked out on that? What is it, Sears Tower glass thing? What are you thing? mad? <laughs> <laughs> are you insane? Of course not. <laughs> I, I, I did. I you know I went to uh, we went to London once, and uh, my wife and I, St. St. Paul's, uh, the the Cathedral, the Wren yeah. the Wren uh, building. Well, of course they they you can go up into the into the tower and you know go outside. And there's this little tiny walkway that's oh my gosh, it's like the size of a bathroom in an airplane. It's that thin. It's but once you start going up, the guards won't let you come back the other way because they don't want you bumping into people. Mm-hmm. Coming up these narrow stairways, so I was, <laughs> I was so terrified. <laughs> I was like clinging to the walls around the outside of the the dome, and finally, when I get up to the top, it's just oh, it's it's terrifying. It's gorgeous up there, but I no, I just I, yeah. that's something I would never do again. <laughs> it's it's like me going swimming in the ocean. <laughs> Uh, oh, really? I, yeah, I have a fear of sharks. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, deathly well. fear. Right? And, and Frank recently gave me a T-shirt about the Great Lakes that says yeah. uh, unsalted 
shark free. But I, <laughs> I still don't believe in Lake them. Michigan. So well, there are alligators. You saw that in the paper. In Lake yeah. Michigan, I saw the alligator yeah. in Waukegan. In Waukegan. Oh, I didn't see yeah, that. Some oh guy God. found an alligator. <laughs> so. But you're not afraid of alligators. No, not in any way. <laughs> Nor of Lake Michigan. I, I would well, he's afraid of Lake Michigan. Yeah, up, now up, up, up to water. my knees is fine. <laughs> well, it was just another Friday at the aquarium until a man stripped naked and jumped into a tank full of sharks known as the Dangerous Lagoon. Have you heard about this story? No. <laughs> okay. I have not. <laughs> All right. No, I know. I, it I sounds like this. a play. Our aquarium here. <laughs> Naturally, another visitor at Ripley's Aquarium of um, Canada in downtown um, Toronto started filming, and the footage he posted to social media shows a naked man casually floating around the tank before swimming to one end, climbing out, and doing a backflip to cheers into the shark tank. Jeez. Yeah. After less than a minute, the man left the pool and walked naked into the crowd of visitors who had been watching him with a mix of reactions. What could he have been thinking? I don't, the sharks are probably too shocked to attack. Well, I've seen the social media video. I, oh, really? I, I wouldn't attack this guy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> The Toronto Police Service identified the man Monday as 37-year-old David Weaver of Nelson, British Columbia. In a statement, they said they were looking for Weaver in connection with an assault that occurred earlier Friday, the Friday before, outside the medieval times in downtown Toronto. Don't we have one of those here in we Chicago do. where we you do. can go and have Sin like Schaumburg a medieval feast and watch oh, jousting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, apparently uh, police said Weaver fled the scene at medieval times around 8 p.m. that Friday after allegedly assaulting a man who was hospitalized with serious injuries. After it, fleeing the scene, is yep, there a mason involved? A broadsword yeah. or something like that. <laughs> After fleeing the scene, it seems that Weaver went to the aquarium about three miles away. Police described Weaver as having a heavy build, as I said, yes. a shaved head, a goatee, and missing front tooth. Ooh. That makes perfect sense. It does. Wow. He sounds like the type who would do that. Because of his shark swimming, Weaver is now also wanted for interfering with property. Uh, Ripley's Aquarium of Canada said in a statement. <laughs> That's Canada for you right there. It is. Hey, you've interfered with our property. Swimming. Yeah. Yes, the dangerous lagoon where Weaver went skinny dipping contains tiger sharks, green sawfish, a green moray eel, and green sea turtles. Naked guy who went swimming with the sharks at the aquarium oh, now wanted by police. <laughs> It's a lucky man. Yeah, really. You worked with John Mahoney on a number of occasions. Oh, the late, yeah. great John Mahoney, yeah, who we yeah. lost this year. Tell yeah. us what was so special about John as an actor, and, and tell us one of your favorite John Mahoney stories, if you remember. He was immensely generous, and, and I should explain what I mean by that. It's, it's, it's actually a very specific term. He was the kind of actor who... And we were taught to do this, but Shelton Patinga, that's another story. But always say yes. Always say whatever, whatever the other actor gives you, if there's some, you know, if, you know unless it's just completely nuts. Um, <laughs> or in some cases at Steppenwolf, even if it's completely nuts. The actor accepts it and, and plays that moment with the same sincerity as the scene you play, uh, the same scene that you played very differently the night before. I remember John and I did a production of Pinter's No Man's Land back in, I think it was 81, 1981, at the old Hull House. 
and oh, he was, he was such, he was just such fun to play with, uh, and it was so wonderful with the language. And so when we did the Rembrandt in, in 2000, well, I guess it was 2017, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. There was such comfort working with him. There was, I would look at him and I, you know, I knew he'd been sick. I had no idea he was that sick. But I'd known him for so many years that we actually had these two, as actors, we actually had a very shared history with these two characters. We'd known each other for, I mean, what is that? That's over almost 30 years. And that was just, that was in every, every glance we had back and forth to one another. That's the thing that I remember. I, rem- I guess that's the thing I remember most about him uh, in terms of my interacting with him. I mean, I could tell you some stories <laughs> about him, but uh, <laughs> well, we have nothing uh, but, uh, but time. Uh, no, but I'm, but I, but uh, I, that's that's what I remember. I, I I recall that it was so easy to work with him because, as I said, we had a we had a shared uh, history that we shared with the characters. It was it was quite, yeah, it was quite personal. At the same mm. time, it was you know, professionally. Now, how did he get connected with Steppenwolf? Because he was not ISU, was he? No, actually. He moved here and uh, joined the Army and got his citizenship through that, moved to Chicago, and he became a medical writer for many years. Oh, really? And then he decided he'd always loved theater, and so he started taking acting classes, I believe at St. Nick, and that's where he met John Malkovich and, and you know, a bunch, all, those, bunch, all yeah. those guys down there. Yeah. And they put him in a couple of plays, and, man, he was good. And they just kept casting him. And so when they expanded the company and moved down from Highland Park, John actually joined, I think, several months before I did. He had just done a show at uh, St. Uh, Nicholas called Ashes, which was huge at the time. And so he joined the company just a couple, few months before I did. Good actors always bring a great deal of themselves to a part because that's what you have. You yeah. have your tool, yeah. and that's what you bring. What would you say, if you could, is your most deeply personal role? Do you recall a role where you felt very, very much part of that character or you, you recognized that character in yourself more than others? Ooh, well, I'm torn uh, answering that, and I'll tell you why. Okay. I remember Austin Pendleton told me once that, uh, in fact, I have a photograph of it the moment he did it, that if you find something in your own life or like a hook that you really, oh, that's going to work for that character, he was emphatic about it, don't tell anybody (laughs) because it's well it's like it's like giving a trick away let me show you where the ball goes when it actually is behind when i'm going to show it to you behind your ear and well why why would you do that you spoil it for everybody sure (laughs) you tell them where the ball went and so so anyway that would be my first answer my second answer is uh, i don't really know because it's uh I'm not exactly sure who I am. I mean, you change, I think, from, from role to role to role. And, and while you use the same muscles, you try to not do that. 
Uh, in fact, they even have an entire school of exercise, the Alexander Technique, to like break habits that, that try to get you away from, that try, from doing the same stuff over and over again. And so as far as a role I'm, I'm particularly fond of, though, I'd say this one, playing Fred in Downstay, and I would say playing Sharky in uh, Where the Devil Comes, and they play poker. The Seafarer. Seafarer, oh. yeah. That was, that was great fun. Mm. Because I have to say, it, it did, uh, this I will give away. It worked into those metaphors growing up Catholic that I remember the, the moment I left Catholicism was when a priest told me something that was so rational and made so much sense to me that I was incensed. You'd always been told, oh, you'll go to hell if you have bad thoughts. And, you know, I mean, these missionaries, these Irish missionaries coming during Lent and just terrifying us as children about <laughs> lakes of fire and stuff like that. And I, oh my gosh. Well, anyway, finally, this priest tells me in, in high school that, you know, mortal sin is not an act, a particular act. You could have lots of reasons for, like, stealing that loaf of bread. What mortal sin is, is living, in a, in living your life outside of a state of grace, outside of a sense of compassion for other people in the world, uh, outside of this this real brotherhood that we all share. And that's living in mortal sin. That's living without, the, essentially, the grace of God in your life. And this was, is, the seafair is all about that. And Mac, it, in, to the point where the devil actually shows up, just so <laughs> right. you get it, okay? <laughs> the devil's in the room, and now we're going to play poker for this guy's soul. And it's simply through dumb luck that he escapes. Dumb luck. Just a little moment in the play where he actually reaches out for some other person. And he wriggles away somehow. He wriggles out of the devil. And it's because he's made that choice in his life. Anyway, it's, uh, it's an interesting... Yeah. That, that's the one that I think I felt closest to in terms of, like, that's, that's the way I see the world. It really is. I mean, one lives in a state, one chooses how one wants to live. And, and I think that's a, that was a perfect example of it, the seafarer. Anyway, that's Yeah, that's no, it. it makes a lot of sense. You work relatively constantly, uh, yeah. as far as I could tell. Yeah, that's, that's not a great idea is, either. Is no. it, is, <laughs> do, you, do you regret no. not being able to see as many shows around the Chicagoland area as possible, as many plays going on? Yes and no. I, I don't really like going to the theater. I, see. <laughs> I, I see. have to say. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I do go and see plays, and, and especially when somebody's doing, doing good work, it's just, oh my gosh, it's transporting. It's, I remember going to see uh, Dancing at Lunasa in London once, my wife and I, and we saw, and this, you know, the, the, there's a huge dance number to the radio. Right. They're just dancing wildly and throwing flour all over the stage and like ripping their clothes. Leaping up on things. Oh yeah. my <laughs> gosh, it's just out of control. And the lights come down at the, and my wife and I just have tears running down our faces. 
that's just the first act. <laughs> I mean, you know, Can but that I love. I love that sort of thing. When I go to the theater, sometimes even people that I admire just make a ghastly botch of something. <laughs> and I just, I just find it unwatchable. And even more unwatchable because I so admire some of the people yeah. that are actually in yeah. the show. It's, it's scary going to the theater. <laughs> you do take a chance. You oh yeah! Every time you it plop could your butt into a really chair, bad. Yeah. E- even yeah. though you may have read about the show or people have told you how wonderful it is, mm-hmm. e- even then you never know what your what your personal experience is going to oh, be. Oh no! And and you could be disappointed. You could and be and the terribly show could be upset. different that night. I, like you said, each night you know there can be some oh, differences, and you go to see a show that's supposed to be great, and I maybe remember, was. I but. remember going to see Chorus Line in New York. I mean, Chorus Line for heaven's sake! That was my first was Broadway still, show that I saw. It was still running, yeah. and it was like six years into it. But it was a Sunday night, and everybody was exhausted, and they just. Well, speak of the devil as you just were. Uh, I went to see the latest show playing at Writer's Theater called Witch. Oh. This is a play by Jen Silverman who wrote The Roommate, which we yes. saw at. Yes, which I really liked. Which you and I saw together. Yeah. This is directed oh, our by. Yeah. Oh, oh, up at Steppenwolf? Yeah, at Steppenwolf. Up at Steppenwolf. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Steppenwolf. Oh, anyway. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Anyway, go ahead. This is you directed by Marty Lyons. This is a wonderful, wonderful play. Is it? It's fantastic. The devil does make an appearance. Cool. It takes place in some fictional medieval village where the devil shows up and he's sort of shopping around trying to buy souls. Ah, and he's offering, he he's offering people deals and mm. wondering, what would it take to get you to sell your soul to me? What could we do? And he has some wonderful, wonderful exchanges. And then he goes and sees a woman who's known as the town witch. Now, she's not really a witch. She's just kind of different. And she's really pissed off about the fact that people think she's a witch. (laughs) And he tries to negotiate with her for her soul. But he's never run into a customer like this. It's all very much about the buying and selling of Uh things. There's a very large overtone of, well, this is the marketplace. It's as if he's selling insurance in some <laughs> weird kind of way. It's a hilarious play, beautifully, beautifully acted by everybody involved. Oh, wow. It's in the smaller theater at Writers. Uh, I will say that this runs through December 16th. You've oh, got quite so some time to see it. If yeah. you have a day off or something do. and you want to have a few laughs... Uh, I don't know if it's playing on Mondays, but you, your show is running till the 18th now, till the right, 18th. France? Yeah. So, you, so yeah. there might I've be got a chance. Of time to see it. Right. I, I recommend it okay. very, very, very All highly. Right. You, you strike me, Francis, yeah. as an actor's actor, I, and I, you know what I mean by that is your craft is always the most important thing to you. It feels that way to me when I watch okay. you. Are you very interested in the fame and the accolades of a celebrity life? Do you strive for that kind of thing? Or is that not ever been all that important to you? Oh, of course. <laughs> One craves recognition. <laughs> I mean, when you walk, when you walk down stage and, and, 
and and see the audience out there at the at curtain call and they're doing that silly thing where they like slapping their hands together in this <laughs> absurd <laughs> gesture and it's kind of thrilling I, i've never really won an award I, I guess i got a jeff award years ago oh. for something i did at uh, uh, victory gardens the thing that i really like about acting the thing that really grabs me is for instance you, there's a there's a moment in the play where uh, my character says to this other character, Andy, Andy, listen to me. I want you to listen now. And there's a dead silence in the house. There's 300 people in a dark room holding their breaths to hear what I'm about to say. And you just think, oh, is there... There is telepathy, there is magic. There's, it's everybody in the room thinking exact, all these strangers, you know, breathing one another's breath and jostling against, you know, leg room and stuff. And they're all thinking the same thing at the same time. And that's just magic. That's just magic. I mean, you never, you don't see that in any other, in any other place on the planet. It only happens in a theater. And I, I, just, find, I just find that amazing. I just and, love that. And you, and you live for those moments. Oh, yeah. And there's quite a few of those moments in this play there downstate. Are, there are. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not well, just Tim, the one you just described. Tim has, Tim has that moment where he's on the couch, and, and I point, oh, oh, yeah, you're feeling so bad. Without your dad. And it just slays him. And the audience is almost repelled by this but they're just a gap they're they're like dead silent it's it's an amazing moment uh and oh i just i'm getting i'm getting chills just thinking about it. <laughs> i'm getting also, chills as well yeah. there's also a lot of power in that because you hold the odd 300 people in the palm of your hand absolutely as you know it it just really doesn't happen any place other than in a theater mm-hmm I wonder what it'd be like to be a rock star. I mean, could you... Well, let me tell you. If you really feel the... Yeah, if you feel the audience that way. Or or a singer, not even a rock singer, but a a singer who has everyone so entranced that, you know, they're waiting for the next note. Yeah. You need to win something big, Fran Guinan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the lottery would be nice. I was going to say. I I blew $20 this week. Did anybody win that billion dollar lottery? One billion. No. No one won. No one won. No. Are you kidding? No. I'm, we should go I, buy tickets right now. I, I'm going. I'm going to stop on the way home. <laughs> stop at the Seven <laughs> Eleven. I heard the odds of winning were somewhere around one point three million to one. It's not bad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at least it's something. It's, it's at least there are there's odds. A chance. At least there is some kind of odds. That guy that wasn't eaten by the shark should probably <laughs> he probably yeah buy a ticket naked. <laughs> Hey, I heard a story about you in your early days. Oh no, I'm sorry. Right, wait a minute. With, <laughs> okay. I believe you get, were in a show on the with Lori Medcalf. Yeah. Did you get naked in Balm and Gilead? Oh yeah. Oh sure. <laughs> oh that. <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to have some story about. It. No, yet we did actually. There's a scene where we've like run upstairs to her room and done the deed, and we have this little 
we have this little little scene. I just crawl out of bed, and, yeah. and there there we are. Yeah, and you know, it's sort of like you know kissing your sister. Uh, <laughs> it, it was funny, you know. Austin Pendleton said <laughs> said once, and his truer words were never spoken. He said, "Every time I see, every time I see two of you Steppenwolf actors on stage, and it's a romantic scene, I don't believe a moment." <laughs> <laughs> and it's absolutely true. It's mm. just, nah, I'm not buying any of that. <laughs> we mentioned earlier that you've been around for many, many years yeah. doing plays all over the country and the world, I, I suppose. Mm, uh, you've well, been in London. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen plays in London. I, I haven't well, done one yet. You're about to do one. I am you're about to do, do one. You're going to do this downstate uh, at the National. Oh, what a Thing. What a dream that is. It's going to be wow. fantastic. Yeah, right? in that theater. Well, I guess you must have started your career in Chicago in the mid-70s. No, actually, in Minneapolis. The first paycheck I ever got was in, uh, I did summer stock while I was in college. I was at Iowa State. I was a, an English major. That's, that was my first paycheck. Oh. Well, your experience in the Chicago theater the Chicago. world has been quite vast. Yeah. How, how would you say Chicago theater has changed in the last 30 to 40 years well most significantly what's what's different about the theater community or the theater scene in chicago these days from when you started i would say we've been very successful in bringing audiences in going to the theater is quite popular in chicago it's far more popular than it is I would say per capita, than it is in New York or pretty much any place in the country. I mean, you'd have to go to Great Britain to see people, I, I suspect. You can go to Great Britain to see people go to the theater as much as they do in Chicago. And I think expanding that audience has been one of the great achievements that Chicago theater, and, and I'd have to say part of the, the credit would go to the grants community, the, uh, the people who are who are behind the scenes. A lot of the money that comes from corporate sponsors does go into organizational positions and that sort of thing, which, of course, makes the organization grow and, and uh, better able to produce a wider variety of uh, stories and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but I would say that's, that's the way it's changed the most. Steppenwolf has always had that... Uh, that reputation for being rock and roll theater and, mm-hmm. and, you know, this sort of visceral, muscular kind of... And I think that's part of the kinds of plays we were doing. But frankly, I think the Chicago style, the Chicago raison d'etre that we've been working with actually goes all the way back to, like, the Compass Players uh, at the University of Chicago and the, oh. the Spolin stuff, you know, Always Say Yes. The Second City, uh, Sheldon Patinkin, for instance, is sort of the godfather of Chicago theater in that everything, all the, all the movement on stage, all the blocking, all the motivation, all the acting is to the, uh, to the benefit of the story. It's not, it isn't about you. And I think what that's done is it's done a couple of things. It's, it's made, I think, Chicago theater, at least the, at its best, it's very true. It's a very true representation of, of human behavior. And it's also created a situation in Chicago where it's a middle-class job. 
I, I've been so very fortunate that I really haven't had to do anything else other than act for years now. Wow. And you know how amazing that is? I yeah. mean, that just doesn't Well, happen. you've got potbelly subs on your resume. How well, well, there you go. Well, I, got, I actually got fired from no. the gym, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is, you can't do that much. Who can afford to live in New York or San mm. Francisco? Well, you can get a job at a theater and, and maybe a side job or, or, you know, every now and again you get a TV show or, a, or a, a voiceover or something like that and you can make a living as an actor in Chicago. And that's, that's quite an achievement. And not just for the individual actors, but as a culture. In, uh -huh. in this city, you know, we have created a situation where the arts are respected. I mean, the Joffrey comes here from New York. Well, of course they came to Chicago, right. and why wouldn't they? The Broadway shows that we bring in, it's, it's a vibrant... I mean, we have one of the best art museums on the planet, and it's because that's the kind of place Chicago is. Mm. Well, there's so many like really good theater companies with reputations. Absolutely. Steppenwolf, you know, Red Orchid, he was talking about writers. I mean, there are places that have established themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Everybody's like developed their own communities, I think, to some degree. And now there's beginning to be a lot of crossover. It's, it's a lovely situation to be in. I, I would say so. Well said. And I, I couldn't agree more. Well, if you'd like to support Booth One and bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like my friend here, mm -hmm. Fran Guinan, yeah. you can go to our website at www.booth-one, that's dash O-N-E dot com. Click on the donate button, quick, easy, fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a non-profit entity. And if you donate $100 or more, Frank, this is our last time, this is the last oh. offer, what do you get? You get a copy of Everybody Pay. A fascinating story by our former guest, uh, Rick Kogan, the novel, and Maurice... Posley. Posley, yeah. A quick read, wonderful read. Two men, Definitely one murder, it. and the price of truth. Yes, and again, all about Chicago. It's your last chance when you hear this uh, episode uh, after we post it. Uh, it's your last chance to get that. Well, Francis, we always end our episodes with a little segment we call The Kiss of Death. It's okay. It's a very <laughs> kindly way. I, I had a feeling it would end this way. <laughs> it's a very kindly way of saying that we celebrate someone who has recently passed and celebrate their life. Yes. Uh, they could be in show business in the entertainment world or not. They could right. be writers, directors, politicians. But today we're going to talk about someone that we lost just recently, Carol Hall. Hmm. Carol Hall, who helped turn an unlikely inspiration into one of the biggest Broadway hits of the 1970s when she wrote the music and lyrics for, and I, I love this show so much, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> Ever do that show, Frank? No, I'd never do that show, but I am one of the six people on this planet who saw the sequel to that show, Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, which was not a success. I saw it in no, previews. No, it was not a success. But a friend of mine was doing the lighting with that, and so we went to see it, and I was like, oh my. T Tommy Toon, I think, directed it, and he was there. And well, he choreographed the original fix some things. Uh, and yeah. co-directed the original yeah. as well. Miss Hall was enjoying moderate success as a singer and a songwriter when developing an idea first hatched during a dinner party conversation she peter masterson and larry l king 
not the Larry King, <laughs> but Larry created L. Best Little Whorehouse, a comedy based on an article that Mr. King had written in 1974 for Playboy magazine. Oh. It concerned the moralistic efforts to close down a real-life Texas brothel known as the Chicken Ranch, right. so named because many customers paid in chickens. <laughs> That it operated in Texas for many years. The provocative title, the down-home humor, and Miss Hall's amiable songs, and they're wonderful songs. They I mean, it, it's a really terrific show. I enjoy I enjoyed it immensely the several times I saw it. Made for a winning package. Uh, the 1982 film version, however, starring Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton. Were you one of the six people who saw that as well? Friend? I did see I have seen that one, but I think like on cable years later. It brought the tale to an even wider audience. Hard Candy Christmas, which is a song from the show, right. was the most recorded song in 1984. Really? Can you believe that? Wow. Okay. (laughs) The show was certainly saucy, but Miss Hall said it wasn't really about sex or prostitution. She said, I was talking to a hooker I met one night recently in 1978, and she asked if I was fascinated with the business. She said, no, I'm just fascinated with hypocrisy. Ooh. Hmm. Hmm. Carol Hall was born in 1936 in Abilene, Texas. Her father, Albert, Albert Hall, (laughs) Not Robert Hall. Not Robert and not Albert. Albert had a music store in Abilene, and her mother, Josephine, was a classical pianist and violinist and a music teacher. After graduating from Sarah Lawrence, she wrote advertising jingles, and the first song of hers that was recorded was a song called Jenny Rebecca, something she had written for a friend who had just had a baby. Barbara Streisand included this on her 1965 album, My Name is Barbara. Really? Barbara, just... Two syllables, Barbara. I've been reminded by my friend Roscoe to say it that way always. Barbara. She released two albums. This is, again, Carol Hall, If I Be Your Lady in 1971 and Beads and Feathers the next year. To support her first album, the Electra Records wanted her to do something she had rarely done before, perform live. Her first engagement, she said, was opening for Chris Christofferson. Oh, my. At the bitter end in the Greenwich Village. Oh, wow. She wrote three songs for Free to Be, You and Me, the 1972 children's album and television special conceived by Marlo Thomas, the first mass market effort to help parents deal with gender discrimination, like boys can have dolls and girls can be firefighters, called Free to Be, You and Me, featured stars like Alan Alda, Diana Ross, Cicely Tyson, Carol Channing, and Roosevelt Greer, the uh, ex-football player performing songs and sketches. Best Little Whorehouse opened on Broadway in June of 1978 and ran until March of 1982, playing 1,584 performances. The show, directed by Mr. Masterson and Tommy Toon, received seven Tony Award nominations and won two, Carlin Glenn and Henderson Forsyth. Oh. A 2001 tour starred Anne Margaret. Do you remember them being on tour? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I am sure it must have come through Chicago. I wasn't living here in 2001, but it must have come through Chicago. Hmm. When they were working on Best Little Whorehouse, Miss Hall and Mr. Masterson, who had five children between them, separate marriages, shared a house for a time, spouses, kids, everybody. They all lived there, dogs, cats. Despite the subject matter, they also shared the creative process with the children. We had to explain everything as we went along, Miss Hall recalled. Children understand reality just fine. It's the lying about reality that they don't understand. Oh, so true. Carol Hall, Best Little Whorehouse composer, was 82. 
I think I've got to download the cast album now. So <laughs> I, I think you should. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever been in many musicals? Well, I was in 1776. In, Perfect uh, for that. In L.A. Yeah. Well, I, I played Hancock. Non-singing. It's a non-singing. John role. Hancock. Doesn't John say. Hancock. Well, I had I had two stanzas, which I handled with some aplomb. I, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> I was, quite, I was quite good. I'm sure. I'm sure. That particular show was during 9-11. We had just opened. It was on the UCLA campus. They had shut down the campus, and we couldn't, we couldn't play. And, and, but we came back, I believe, the 13th and did a performance. And the place was like, I mean, it had been sold out, but it was, there was only a small handful of people. And Orson Bean, who was playing Franklin, we got back to the dressing room and we're all taking our wigs off and our, standing there in our breeches and stuff like that. And Orson, who you know must have been 100 years old at the time, he said, this is a quote, God damn it, we've got to do something. And so with his wig off and his, his suspenders and breeches sort of hanging down, he said, come on. And we catch up with the audience, and we, there's a big open plaza in front of the, the Freud Theater in the, in, uh, on the UCLA campus. And we caught up with the, with the audience that had showed up that night to see it. And he, he sang God Bless America oh. after doing 1776, a couple of days after the attack, the 9-11 attacks. And... Uh, it, there wasn't a dry eye wow. in, in the place. It, it, was a, it was just a lovely moment. And again, you know, live theater. I mean, it's, it's yeah. something absolutely spontaneous that Orson Bean had come up with at that moment. And we did it for the rest of the run. Oh, he did. We'd run out and catch up with the audience. And, we'd, and we actually started passing out because nobody knew the words, <laughs> oh. of course. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was, it was quite, a, quite an experience. Uh-oh. Well, thank you, Fran Guinan, for being our mm-hmm. guest today. It's thank a booth you. one privilege to have a fine actor and an even finer human being grace our show. It's been a real treat to meet you and have you on. Visit our website at www.booth-one, that's dash O-N-E, yep. dot com for prior episodes and more information about our program. Yes. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranjo. Saying so long and keep listening. <laughs>